One of the most significant threats to our ongoing faith and witness as a local church is persecution. And the question I want us to consider today is, what will we do as a church family when we experience it? Now, some of you may already be questioning the relevance of this talk for our time in Edinburgh. Well, we might say we're mistreated in some respects. We're not really persecuted, though, are we? Well, that may be down to a narrower definition of persecution than we have in our Bibles. You see, many of us think about Christian persecution as violent acts that happen to other people in other places under the kind of tyrannical regimes that hate the gospel. Now, that's definitely persecution for sure. And we should be praying for our persecuted brothers and sisters. But the Bible actually presents a much broader definition than that. Flick through the New Testament and you'll find that persecution isn't just physical, it's verbal. I mean, on, on almost every page, you'll find the verbal treatment of Christians described with words like insulted, mocked, abused, reviled, uh, maligned and slandered. And Matthew 5, of course, is a perfect example of this. When Jesus says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So you see, the, the biblical definition of persecution includes not just the things that people can do to us, but the things that people say to us or about us in order to harm us the gospel we love and stand for, and the mission we're on. So let me ask again, what will we as a church family do when we experience persecution? When our kids talk brokenheartedly about how harsh and brutal the mockery is at school, uh, how will we uh, what will we do when we face persecution when our hearts sink at the news that our neighbours who are friendly to our face are spreading rumours about us behind our backs, speaking about us like we're, we're weirdos or something? Or when we're lonely because we've been cold-shouldered by colleagues or family members or friends because they're scared to identify with us. They don't like our views, so they want to distance themselves from us. What, what should we do? And what should we do about the heart of it? Well, what does Jesus say to us? Exactly what he says to this church in Smyrna. He says two things. First of all, I know. Jesus says to those who are persecuted, I know what you're going through. Now, verse 9 tells us all about Smyrna's suffering. Jesus says, I know your afflictions, your poverty, and I know about the slander of these of these uh, so-called Jews. Now, the word afflictions is most likely a summary term for a number of things together um, that are putting continual pressure on the Smyrnaean believers. And it's a word that's commonly used actually to describe uh, the action of millstones that grind grain down. Uh, so the church, as it were, uh, is going through the mill. But Jesus then picks out two things that are in a bit more detail um, that are making life hard for the church, and that's poverty and slander. In terms of poverty, uh, we know that it wasn't uncommon for people to make you feel the disdain of your choice of Lord by boycotting your trade. Uh, Smyrnaeans, though situated in what is uh, now modern-day Turkey, 
they saw themselves as uh, as Rome's or the empire's favourite city outside of Rome. Uh, Smyrna was the first city, of course, outside of Rome to build a temple to Caesar and practice freely this emperor worship. So they would happily visit the temple, pinch some incense, throw it on the flames saying, Caesar is Lord. They were quite proud of all of that. So you can imagine then what they thought of people who called someone else Lord, Jesus, and refused to worship what they were worshipping in the way that they were. Well, they made their feelings clear by walking past your stall, not buying your goods, uh, overlooking your job applications, all because you were a Christian and all because you were not like them. And with no state benefits to fall back on either, no business meant no bread. And that was really hard. It was costly to be a Christian. It still is, really. I mean, we should not be surprised if persecution hits our pockets. And don't be surprised if persecution tears at your reputation either. That's what we see from the slander that uh, is worsening the situation for the Smyrnaeans. Now, slander is essentially hate spreading. It's verbal persecution. You're slandered when someone speaks disparagingly about you to someone else in order to make that person antagonistic towards you, to make them think badly of you and to make them act badly towards you. That's what these so-called Jews were doing. But why? There are two possible reasons for this. Acts uh, tells us that Jews were often jealous of the growth of the church and the number of people who were Jews turning to Jesus, so they persecuted Christians. They didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. But history also adds to this and colours it for us. It tells us that during these times of increasing persecution, of uh, Roman persecution, persecution, Jews were anxious about being tarred with the same brush as Christians. Because Roman, you see, had originally assumed that uh, Christians were just another little sect of Judaism. But what better way for a Jew then to distance themselves from Christians and underline their own good standing in the empire than to slander? So Jews tried to make Romans antagonistic toward the church by, you know, you can imagine it by saying like, hey, see Titus over there, he doesn't visit the temple. He doesn't say Caesar is Lord, not like we do. And all of a sudden the screw is turned and the focus is on the Christian. Now the knowledge of that kind of thing to the church in Smyrna would have been a painful thing to them because the prospect then of them being understood, accepted in their society or even just tolerated a little bit was slipping away. But what a difference it made to them to hear that someone knows what they're going through and that that someone else is Jesus Christ, the eternal God who holds him in his hands, who holds everybody and everything in his hands, actually, and whose death not only underlines his eternality, his foreverness, but demonstrates what glory those who suffer will enjoy when they faithfully endure. That makes all the difference. It would have made all the difference to receive this letter and these words from Jesus. To say, I know. Now, it didn't take away the thing causing the pain. Oh, but it helped. It helps us, doesn't it? When we hear someone say something similar to us. And it helps especially when, when this uh, knowledge isn't just information-based, but it's experiential knowledge. Jesus knows what it feels like to be afflicted. 
Jesus knows a lot about poverty. Jesus knows what it is to be slandered to the point where people would wish you were dead. This comforted the church in Smyrna, and we can know the same comfort in our afflictions. He knows what we're going through as much as he knew what they were going through. So those words spoken about us or against us, they hurt. You know, to have your name smeared or your reputation ruined by lies, or when you're hated by the, the people that you're desperately trying to love and see saved from judgment and eternal hell, that's a hard thing. It's upsetting to us. To be cruelly treated is emotionally costly, but Jesus who suffered comes and says, I know. And actually, he does more than that. He, he comes to remind us of what's actually true, recalibrating and resetting our perspective on things. I don't know if you noticed those four little words in the middle of verse nine, where they're saying, oh, our poverty. Jesus says, yeah, you're rich. In heavenly terms, you have an, an imperishable treasure in heaven awaiting you. Oh, we should remind each other of these things. Remind each other of what he knows about us and how much we're in his hands, and remind us about the things that are true, that we would cling on to those things, and not the pain. Well, we need that today, but we'll also need this tomorrow, because from what Jesus goes on to say to the church in Smyrna, we see that persecution is not something that goes away. Verse 10, Jesus says, I know what you'll go through tomorrow. He's already said, I know what, you'll go through, what you're going through today, and he says, I know what you're going to go through tomorrow. Do, uh, verse 10 tells us, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison and test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Well, that is not what they wanted to hear. The prospect of... Uh, of ongoing persecution. Jesus, sovereign over all things, fascinatingly, does not say, oh, things are hard, let me step in, let me put a stop to this. No, persecution is going to progress from something verbal to something physical, just as it did with him, with Peter, with Paul, with John. Now, this new suffering involves prison, but it's not crime-related, it's faith-related. That's why Jesus calls it persecution in the passage. But here's why we know that, because prison wasn't really a punishment in Roman society. It was for those awaiting trial, awaiting death, having already been sentenced, or for those needing time to think. So in all likelihood, it was the latter. And that was meant to try and uh, convince these people to reset their thinking and be much more aligned with the Smyrnaeans, who were happily making sacrifices to Caesar at Caesar's temple declaring Caesar as Lord. But they wouldn't. And so their persecution in prison lasted for a time. And it only intensified the pain. And yet again, Jesus knows. He doesn't just know what they're going through. He knows in advance and tells them. So that even when things intensify and even the devil's involved, Jesus tells us he's not caught off guard. Even in the future things, he's at work using the devil even to serve his own purposes, setting the conditions of his work and his tasks, just as the Lord did with Job 
10 days and no more, in other words, a brief period of time, and all to test, and all to refine the faith of those he loves. And we've come to know this, haven't we? We see the good that comes through suffering, primarily when we look at Christ and what his suffering achieved. But we see it in the church as well, don't we? We see it work, its wonders of faith strengthening work in believers who also are going through the mill. The Lord supplies the grace we need to endure. His grace is sufficient for us. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time or read any section of God's word, we realise this, that suffering is is the polishing cloth of gospel churches that enables them to shine more brightly and reflect more vividly the glory of Jesus Christ. That's what Christ wants them to see. Now, what difference did that make to the church family in Smyrna? And what difference will it make to us as we think about persecution and persecution that's on the increase? And it is. I mean, even if you want to put some numbers on it globally, it's quite staggering. From the time of Jesus' death until now, it's estimated there have been about 70 million Christians martyred. 45 million of those, more than half, have been killed in the last century alone. That's more than all the other centuries put together. And the greatest antagonist has been the state. National governments make up for 80% of those deaths, of that persecution. And the bad thing is, it goes unreported. Uh, John Allen, writing for The Spectator uh, in 2013, called the persecution of Christians the unreported catastrophe of our time. And even last year, Jeremy Hunt and Prince Charles came out and said the same. Jeremy Hunt was even saying that it was down to our, our political correctness that we were not standing up for the Christians who were being killed. Well, I'm not saying all of this to scare us. Jesus himself in this passage tells us these things so that we will not be afraid. But I do want us to be aware and to be ready. And that's what Jesus wants the Smyrnaeans to be. That's what he wants us to be. You see, he's caring for them by readying them. When you receive news like this of something that's coming a little down the track that's going to involve pain and hurt, you're alert to it, aren't you? You you brace yourself for it. It's like when the dentist approaches you with a needle and says, sharp scratch. You brace yourself. You're ready for the pain when it comes. But this also creates resolve in us. You know, a determination to endure and to persevere through it. And it also reminds us to, of the need to look at things that are happening in this life from his perspective. He knows about those we want, who want to bruise us or uh, verbally or physically. He knows all about the devil's work. But he wants us to see the spiritual reality of his reign, of our wealth in him, the fact of his sovereign control and his victory. And I guess that's what's really behind the second point uh, today. After the reassurance that he knows comes the command, be faithful 
Now, faithfulness comes with great rewards. And this passage tells us of two incredible rewards. The first, you will receive the victor's crown. Be faithful even to the point of death, verse 10, and I will give you the victor's crown. Now, this isn't the crown of a monarch. It's the laurel wreath of a champion athlete. And Jesus crowns all who die in him with eternal life. Just as Jesus himself promised. And that tells us that death is not the end for those who love Jesus. And death need not be feared by those who love Jesus. Now, few things energise faith in the midst of persecution quite like that. Whether you have someone speaking about you uh, behind your back or someone trying to tie you to a pyre of wood and set it alight, the reward that awaits us for keeping the faith and testifying in the midst of it is incredible. God gives us the grace to do that. That's what he did with a certain pastor from Smyrna, a generation or so after John's imprisonment. His name was Polycarp, and uh, history tells us that he was actually one of John's disciples. In the year 155 AD, he was hauled into the amphitheatre so that the Romans could make sport of him, either by embarrassment or by death. The proconsul demanded he uh, recant his faith or face the fire. He replied, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme the, my king who saved me? What incredible faith! He was faithful unto death and faced it as one who knew it as simply a gateway to life. Uh, Irenaeus, his own disciple, said that when he was led onto the wood, they tried to nail his hands to the stake to stop him from running, as was their practice. But he said, Let me be as I am. He that granted me the fire will grant me also to remain at the pyre unmoved without being secured with nails. Now, Polycarp was not superhuman friends. He was a Christian, just like you and me, who was full of faith. And Jesus, the real hero, the real victor, gave him grace to face this persecution that came before his death and in the moment of his death in a way that testified to all that Christ is all. The response was incredible. The account of Irenaeus, Polycarp's disciple, was that the amphitheatre was filled with awe, saying, all the multitude marveled at the great difference between unbelievers and the elect. That's the first reward. The second reward for faithfulness is you'll avoid the second death. To the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Now you're like, two deaths? I thought there was only one. (laughs) Well, we'll look at this later in the series. But the second death refers to the sentencing of those who don't believe in Jesus and haven't turned to him for forgiveness, for sin, and to live in obedience of faith. The second death equals the judgment that takes a person to eternal hell. But the reward for the faithful, for those who've experienced great harm in life because of their faith, will proceed amazingly without any harm whatsoever into eternal life in heaven with Jesus because they share in his victory. Now, 
This is, this is so important that I actually want to give you a memory aid for this. The word victorious comes up all the time, not just in these seven letters, but throughout the book of Revelation. And the word victorious uh, in Greek is a word that's, I'm sure, known to all of us. Uh, you may even be wearing this on your person. It's the word Nike. Uh, we pronounce it uh, Nike or Nike, depending on where you're from. And it means to be victorious. It means to overcome. Now, it's a word that's used throughout Revelation to describe two things. One, the devil's futile attempts to conquer the church. And two, the Lord's unconquerable victory on behalf of his church. The point of the gospel is that because he won, we win. This is what we're reminded of in Revelation all the time. Because he overcame Satan's sin and death, we overcome Satan's sin and death. So every time you see, yeah, I've got a shoe in my hand. Every time you see this sign, remember, ah, Nike, victory, overcome, not trampled, not beaten down, but victorious. Eternal life is promised. The second death, no harm will come to us. So when we face persecution, verbal or physical, when life is hard because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we need to remember what Jesus says. I know. Be faithful. If you're watching this just now and you're not a Christian, the Bible says in clear terms, you cannot share in this confidence. Death will be different for you. And the prospect of facing God should be a fearful thing to you when you are not right with him. The thing that makes you victorious, the thing that will enable you to become an overcomer is to believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved, to turn from sin and trust in Christ and receive this gift of eternal life right now. Say sorry for your sins. Thank you for sending Jesus to die. Please help me to live for you. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for filling our hearts with such comfort and with such confidence through this passage. We face hard times, verbal and physical persecution. Our brothers and sisters face it in severer ways throughout this world. Lord, bless and strengthen them, we pray. Let them lean on your sufficient grace. And for us, may we lean too on your sufficient grace that we might share in the victory, endure and be faithful and bring honour and glory to your name and we pray more people with us into glory. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.